from the latest on Caribbean cruises to kosher safaris, pilgrimages to Jewish Eastern Europe and award-winning wines and international cuisine in sun-drenched Tel Aviv. Sit back and enjoy the trip with the travel edition of the Jerusalem Post podcast. Welcome back to Prague, David. Thank you very much indeed. It feels like I was only here, well, as far as listeners are concerned, a couple of weeks ago, as far as you and I are concerned, about 30 seconds ago when we last pressed stop on our recorder. It was fabulous, Prague, but I want to see more. So the last time that we presented on Prague, we talked very much about the city's non-Jewish past. But anybody who knows anything about Prague also knows that it has a very rich Jewish history, heritage, and unlike many, many cities in Europe, a lot of it remains intact to this day. And in fact, the oldest synagogue in Europe is still used for prayers. Did you sit in a beer bath? And got all wrinkled. Why are you asking? Because we've done that already. So, um, Yeah. Can we do that again? No, Mark. We are doing Jewish stuff. And Jews don't sit in beer baths. It's not part of our culture. We stay away from things like beer. Can we encourage people to make it part of the culture? That would be very nice. However, I do promise you alcohol, okay? Oh. Alcohol of a kosher variety, so Uh, sticking with the Jewish theme, okay? Yes. So what we're going to be doing is taking a look at Prague from the very Jewish perspective. That means going into the historic part of town, of course, the synagogues or shuls, uh, seeing the cemetery. The cemetery, the first time I saw it, blew my mind just the history that's there, the, the, the story of the cemetery, the way it was built out of necessity. I imagine we'll also hear about King Wenceslas, who... When did he last look out? I thought you were going to say that, yes, on the, the Feast, Feast of, of Stephen, Stephen. But his connection to the Jewish people. But we'll do all of that through this pod. For me, when I knew we were coming to Prague, there were two stories in my mind that I'd like to find out more about, if we can. Two Jewish stories. Should I make some spooky music noise at this point? No, because I was going to start with Franz Kafka. (laughs) I'd obviously heard of Kafka, but I wasn't very much into what he'd written. But I read a wonderful book by Nicole Krauss called Forest Dark, and it traces her story to the Hilton Tel Aviv, where she then goes to try and find a missing man and ends up looking for documents and stories of Franz Kafka. And one of the things I found out is Franz Kafka, when he died, asked for all of his works to be destroyed, and they weren't. And now Kafka is very much a feature of Prague. Absolutely, and Kafka was not known during his lifetime particularly, even though he lived within 100 years of of us recording this. And the other story, again, from a book I read, I read a book called The Gollum and the Ginny by Helen Wecker. Um, Look at you. I know, I've read two books. (laughs) I'll do the Bible next, I promise. <laughs> Where it talks about bathing in beer. Yes. <laughs> and, and clay. The, and the Lord saith. But obviously the golem is synonymous with Prague. The Maharala Prague creating the golem and bringing him to life to save the community. I'd like to find out more about that if we can. I imagine we can. We're off to meet our tour guide who's going to take us around uh, historic Jewish Prague. But before that, Mark, time for a quick question. I mentioned the Maharal of Prague, but the Maharal of Prague was not born in Prague or even in the Czech Republic. He was born in Poland. But can you name the city that he was born in? The answer at the end of the pod. 
will remember from our previous podcast in Prague, we had this wonderful guide called Vlasta, who is taking us around Prague again, but a different part of Prague. What are we going to see today, Vlasta? Today we are going to see the part of the new city, which we haven't seen yet, but after we are going to most important part of our tour, which is a Jewish ghetto. We call it original Jewish ghetto, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore, but few synagogues left, but the huge history is with us for all the time. Of course, I'm sure during our tour, whether we record it or not, you're also going to point out much of the modern connections, whether it's to the State of Israel or to the Jewish people. But we can start right here, underneath this building, where a very famous uh, person used to hang out. So now we stay in the front of the building, which was uh, visited by Albert Einstein in years 1911-1912 and allowed me to use modern words. He was visiting that place in order to have a parties there with other Jewish intellectuals of that time. As we've been walking around the older part of town, I say the older part of town, but everything downtown is old. Vlasta was pointing out to us the street of the Jewish printers. We also walked past the State Theatre, which is where Mozart received much acclaim in the city. And just outside there, there is a statue of the Dibuk. This city and the Jewish heritage are intertwined one with another and wherever you look, obviously especially in the Jewish ghetto area, there is some form of connection either to our story or to our current sojourn in Israel. As with all Jewish communities across Europe, there have been good times and bad trials and tribulations. Largely, as our guide is telling us, Vlasta, in Bohemia, in uh, Czechoslovakia, in all the different forms, there were really only a couple of periods where the Jews suffered to the extent of pogroms. There were other things going on. The first Jewish visitors of Prague about year 965. Ibrahim ibn Jakob was the first one who discovered to Prague and who said something like, Today, promo email that the Prague is a wonderful city uh, with a lot of options for, for business and good place to live in. So he sends this letter off to all of his pals. They come in, they start the earliest Jewish community and everything in the first years is good. So at the beginning everything was okay, but later after year 1215 it has been changed and Jews started to be not really persecuted, that started to be controlled. They had to live in a special place called ghetto, they had to wear special signs like hats and they couldn't do everything. They had only very limited possibilities what to do and how to get money for their lives. It deteriorated a little further in 1389? Yeah, it happened the biggest pogrom of Prague. The three thousands or probably seven thousands, we are not sure about the number, uh, were killed because they were uh, targeted by the Christians of Prague. So it was a very bad period for them. The rest of the time they were expelled from the Prague. This was the worst situation or worst position to them. 
So after the pogrom, really there was a period of, of quiet until World War II? Not real quiet. The Jewish people sometimes were expelled from Prague, which means that they had to leave Prague. Sometimes they left in other places, in Moravia, on, in other cities of Czech Republic, of Bohemia, and sometimes they returned back after years. For Jewish people, Prague holds a very special place. Travelling through Europe, many of the communities that once were, there are very few vestiges that survived the war, that survived communism. There are places where there might be one synagogue, there are places where there may be a museum and nothing else. But in Prague, I guess we're blessed with the fact that despite everything that's happened over the last hundred years, that we have standing six synagogues that comprise a Jewish museum. The artifacts within tell the story of a thousand years of history. And we're with the woman who is in charge of educating all of us about what happened and about this collection. Susanna Pavlovska, please introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about what you do, and then we'll talk a bit about the museum. I'm the head of the Department for Education and Culture in the Jewish Museum in Prague, and I'm actually responsible for all the schools that are coming to us to educate them and teach them about the Jewish history from the beginning, about the Jewish tradition and custom, about the anti-Semitism, Shoah, and also about the life today. Prague's pretty specific place because we still today we have uh, the former synagogues which used to be part of the former ghetto and uh, they are today used as a Jewish museum in Prague but the history of the Jewish museum it's much older because the Jewish museum in Prague was founded in 1906 and we were the first Jewish museum in Europe after Vienna and Frankfurt but at the time we didn't have so many artifacts and most of the synagogues of course were used as a synagogues as a working shoes but all changed after the world war ii because many of the jews from my country perished during the shoah and the synagogue started to be used as a museum and all the things from the original 153 jewish communities started to be part of uh, our collections and today in the jewish museum you can see so many objects which always are telling the story about the former communities which were not open again after 1945. We've started in the Maisel Synagogue. Can you tell us about the Maisel Synagogue and what part of the museum is housed here? The Maisel Synagogue today, it's the story of the Jews from the beginning, which means from the 10th century till 1780, which is the time when Maria Theresa died. So it's basically about the oldest history of the Jews in my country, till the time when she died and the Enlightenment actually started. As we walk around on the display cabinets, we've seen a number of Stars of David against certain exhibits. What do they represent? We can see the Star of David, which is actually today the sign of the Prague Jewish community. But it's not just a simple Star of the David, but inside the Star of the David, you can see the special hat. It used to be a yellow hat, which Jews were forced to wear in the 1400 during the reign of Charles IV. And later on, they actually decided that this will be part of the sign of the Prague Jewish community. So till today, the Prague Jewish community is using the Star of David together with the hat as a sign. This was a private synagogue. I think most of us in the modern era are used to uh, synagogues that are run by a local Jewish community. 
how was this different? How did it operate? This synagogue was uh, built by Mordechai ben Shmuel Meisel between 1590-1592 as a private synagogue. But it doesn't mean that this was a synagogue just for him and his family. It was a f- synagogue for the people they lived actually close by and they started to go to this place. But it's called like a Meisel synagogue according to him. But today we can see just one third of the former synagogue because there were a lot of reconstructions. And of course the Renaissance design changed to the neo-Gothic till today. We're going to move on now to other parts of the museum, but just in terms of the Meisel, what you will see when you come here are lots of artefacts, but also it's a very good starting point for your visit here because you will see maps, you will see drawings that explain the growth um, and shrinkage of the Jewish community of the Czech Republic, but also, of course, of Prague itself. So it's a very good starting point. This is Mark Gordon from the Jerusalem Post podcast travel edition. Find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at MarkDavidPod or mail us at MarkDavidPod at gmail.com. The next stop on the museum tour is the Pinchas Synagogue. What is the synagogue used for by the museum? It's used as a memorial of the Holocaust or Shoah. So inside the synagogue you can see more than almost 80,000 names of the Jews from my country. They were killed during the World War II. So the walls are full of the names from different villages, cities, places. Uh, the main hall it's uh, just Praha and we can see here also the names of the concentration and extermination camps that Jews from uh, Protectorate Bohemia and Moravia went through. The synagogue is used for all kind of occasions to remember uh, the tragedy of the 20th century, the tragedy of the Shoah. So, for example, Yom HaShoah is here also. We remember here the biggest murder of the Jews from the Terzin family leg- lager uh, in Auschwitz-Birkenau in March 8, in 1944. So it's not used really as a museum, it's mostly used as a memorial. Just, if you would, describe for us, beyond the remembrance, the synagogue, what it looks like, how far it dates back. The synagogue is actually the second oldest synagogue in the Jewish quarter. It was uh, the first mentions are actually from 1492, but uh, then it was enlarged by the family Horowitz in the middle of the 1600s. It used to be, and it is still, a beautiful synagogue. You can see a Renaissance design. So it uh, was used again like the other synagogues till actually 1941, and then it turned to the storage house also. It was pretty much destroyed during the World War II, so there were a lot of reconstructions after, uh, before actually the director of the Jewish Museum in Prague at the time, Dr. Hanna Volavkova, with the others decided that this place will be actually the place of the memory. For those people listening, they may be able to hear something in the background. What is the soundtrack? Now, actually, exactly, they are able probably to hear the prayer El Male Rachamim, and later they could actually hear the names of uh, the men, women, children, always with dates and with place where they were killed. The largest part of the Jewish area of Prague is the cemetery. In many ways it's fitting because it's the way to remember all of the people who lived here. Some 12,000 gravestones are visible. Many, many more people were buried beneath those on the top layer so that 
the estimates talk of tens of thousands, maybe 100,000 people buried there. And now we've come across the road to the oldest continuously used synagogue in the world, which is the Alt Neuschul, which is the old new synagogue. When does it date back to? The old new synagogue was built between 1270-1280, which was the time when Jews were already forced to live in a ghetto. So they couldn't build this place, actually. So the people, they probably built not far from here, the Agnes Monastery, they built this shul, just the main hall, which is today used for the men, for the services. Anybody who visits a church that dates back to that sort of period will recognize a lot of the architecture here. I think they will recognize the Gothic architecture, the high Gothic architecture, the vault and the shape, how the building was built. But of course, they will also discover something special and unique that the two columns are supporting the wall, but they are also making the place for Bima and for the table that we are reading Toroskov from it, which is the men, of course, because this synagogue is used by the Prague Orthodox Jewish community. We're standing at the front of the synagogue. This chair is of significance to the Prague Jewish story. We are seeing actually the seat and the chair of Maharal. It's not the original one because the original one was replaced in 1900 by this one which we are seeing. And it's such a famous place because it's remembered that the great rabbi Yehuda Leva ben Bezalel called Maharal used to sit on this chair and used to have a services inside the synagogue. And around the synagogue, the seats are, are on the perimeter of the synagogue and nearly every seat has a wooden lectern in front of it. Is this how it used to be? It's really how it used to be because we can still see that till today the members of the community, the recent members of the community, are buying the seats inside the synagogues that no one will use them during the services. But in the past, people were coming just to this shul, so they were bringing with them talis, tefillin, sidrim, magzorim, and they used this little table for it and also for the prayer. Today, most of the services during the week are in the high synagogue, which is the synagogue uh, inside the Jewish town hall. And just for like a mari for the Eve service, they are coming to this place, so they are bringing the things together with them. They are not keeping them inside this little table. You've been very kind with your time. Before we let you go on to other duties, I'd like you to give a more sort of emotional answer here. You spend every day wandering these streets, feeling the history, explaining to people what happened to the Jewish community, about the existing Jewish community. How does it make you feel? Do you see it as a mission? Do you see it as a personal passion? Or is it just another job? It's not another job. It's the mission and passion together. I think it's a... Uh it's really emotional in the way to think about the history of the Jews in my country from the beginning. And we can really go through the centuries and see all the things and hear all the things because they are here. They are inside the town. They didn't disappear. Even we know about the tragedy of the Shoah. So for me, it's both. David and I are very privileged that we get to travel around, around Europe, around the world and see the history of our ancestors. And I think this is my first time in Prague. I think we've we mentioned that. It's just so fascinating to see so much of that history intact and well-preserved, thanks mainly to the Jewish Museum of Prague. If people want to visit the museum and, and want to see this fabulous history of Prague, how do they get in contact with the museum? 
They can actually visit us on the website and buy the ticket online, or they can actually visit the Information Reservation Center of the Jewish Museum in Prague, and they can actually also ask for the guide, and they can actually discover the Jewish quarter by themselves, but also together with someone who will explain more probably about the history of the Jews in Bohemia and Moravia. Susanna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for this. It was really a pleasure for me to be with you. Thank you. Prague Fact File. Václav Havel Airport, Prague, can be reached directly from New York with Delta, from the UK with British Airways, EasyJet, Ryanair and Jet2, from Paris with Air France and Czech Airlines. There are up to 30 Tel Aviv flights per week available with Arkea, Bluebird, El Al, Israel and Smartwings. Prague Railway Station is accessed from Airport Terminal 1 using the Airport Express. Buses 100 and 119 link you up with Prague's underground network. A three-day transport pass costs around 330 karuna or $13.50. Children under 15 and seniors over 65 go free. We stayed at the five-star Mozart Hotel. Other recommended hotels include the Four Seasons, Hilton, Mandarin Oriental and the Grand Mark. The Kosher King David Hotel is located near Prague's main train station. 100 US dollars will buy you 2430 Czech Karuna as of July 2022. The climate of Prague is moderately continental, characterised by cold winters, with temperatures often below freezing, and mild or pleasantly warm summers. There are 27 Prague restaurants in the Michelin Guide, including two with one Michelin star. One of those is Field, near the Jewish Quarter. Kosher restaurants include Chabad Grill, Umilo Italian, Shellano Pizzeria and Shalom Restaurant. So we walked through the Jewish Quarter. The entrance where we came in is full of fashion shops like Valentino, Prada, kind of like our podcast in Vilnius when we went through the ghetto there. It's now very much an art and fashion area. There's symbolism anywhere. And I was walking up to one of the synagogues and I saw a Star of David. and I got very excited. I thought that looks very modern. Apparently, that's the shop for Mont Blanc where they um, sell pens, which also has a Star of David as its logo. But we've come to stand under probably the most recognisable synagogue, partly for its history and partly for the story that goes with it. Which synagogue is this? So this is an old new synagogue, which was built around the year 1280. And it's famous for, for the legend. I'm looking up at the attic of the synagogue. Mm-hmm. There's the, obviously the legend of the golem. The golem. And the, the golem is intrinsically linked with the synagogue. For those listeners that don't know, can you tell us a brief story of the golem, the golem. And, and, its cre- and the golem's creator, the Maharal? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So Maharal is a, one of the famous uh, rabbis of Prague. We call him also our teacher. He did golem as a creature. Uh, from uh, clay and alive that creature done uh, from clay by putting him uh, uh, the special formula called Hashem which means uh, his name the God name and he alived him that way 
and both the Golem and the Rabbi are still very much celebrated in Prague. Yeah. Uh, the statue of the Maharal is in the new town hall and there are statues of the Golem, films about the Golem all throughout Czech culture going back to, well, going back to the times of the Golem really. So do we think the Golem is up there in the loft? There exists some legend who says that uh, Golem is waiting for young student who would be strong enough to wake him up. But be careful because the uh, creature of Golem has a three meters. So once uh, that someone is not strong enough and sees uh, the weight and size of Golem, it could be very dangerous. You're listening to the Jerusalem Post podcast, Travel Edition. Find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at MarkDavidPod or mail us at MarkDavidPod at gmail.com. At the steps of the Spanish synagogue in the Jewish quarter, there is a well-known statue of Franz Kafka. Can you tell us why it's here and what it represents? I would say that Franz Kafka is here because he is very strongly connected with that place. He was born not far away from here in year 1883. He born into the rich Jewish family, atheistic Jewish family. All his life he had been living around that place. And the statue itself is a headless man with a smaller man on top of him. I would say it could explain his difficulties with his father because uh, his father was a man which we called uh, self-made men, very strong personalities. And Franz was more sensitive. He preferred to be with his mom, with his uh, three sisters. So probably some kind of difficulties between him and his father, who knows. The story goes that as he was dying, he died from, was it tuberculosis yeah. he died mm-hmm. from? And, mm-hmm. and Essentially, he couldn't feed himself. In his last days, his friend and publisher, Max Brod, mm-hmm. he told him to destroy all of his remaining work. Yeah, that's true. And Max Brod didn't. Didn't, thanks a God. Why did he want his work destroyed? Oh, because Kafka wasn't strong personality. He didn't trust himself. He didn't uh, believe into his work. He thought that his work is not good enough, simply. Mark, if you remember, and of course listeners can go back through our archive to our trip, to recent trip, to Catalonia and Salvador Dali, two people who lived the same time, two people who had problems with their fathers, two people who were not necessarily convinced by the world in which they lived. Big difference, Salvador Dali was famous in his own lifetime, Franz Kafka, Vlasta, only famous well after his death. So Franz Kafka became a symbol of Jewish Prague after Velvet Revolution. During the communism, me personally, I don't know if the others, but me personally, I didn't know anything about him. I just learned after 90s. As is the case in many cities throughout Europe and beyond, Jewish communities initially lived in the centre, in the downtown, perhaps in the Jewish ghetto, and bit by bit, if they could afford, as times changed, they would move out to the leafy suburbs. And that's what Mark, myself and Vlasta have done. We headed out on a couple of trams into Prague 6 and Prague 7, 
All of the neighbourhoods here are numbered, so we're not that far from uh, the city centre. There are areas that are Prague 11 and 12 and so on. We are surrounded by beautiful homes. We're at the end of a street named after Ronald Reagan because the uh, residency of the uh, American ambassador to the Czech Republic is about uh, 15 yards away from where we are now. But this Vlasta is our Jewish tour. Tell us a little bit about the Jews that moved out to this part of uh, the city. Okay, so uh, the Jews who were the part of the most richest community on that time of the, before the World War II, they moved from the city centrum to that area. Probably the most famous name on that time was the family Pecek, the family who controlled the production of brown coat, brown coat of Europe on that time and they built their three wonderful houses or three wonderful villas which are now taken as places for Russia embassy, US residency, one of them used to be Chinese embassy but it's not anymore now was returned back to the Czech government. They were built in a wonderful way of the architecture of the Prague of the beginning of the 20th century. What about numbers of the Jewish community? What was the largest number? How many people disappeared during the Second World War? And what about the Jewish numbers today? Uh, we can say about the Jewish community, about the numbers before World War II in uh, Czech and Moravia, there used to be around 120,000 uh, Jews. <laughs> About half of them used to live in Prague and uh, the rest were spread out, so they were spread in uh, Czech Republic and uh, Moravia. And then the war, which uh, the Holocaust happened, so 80,000 Jews died during World War II. And now uh, the number is very low in Prague regarding the religious point of view. We can speak about 3,000 Jews in Prague. And unofficially, according to other counting, there could be a little more, but I don't know exactly the number. I know that could be around 15,000 to 20,000 totally in Czech Republic. If people want to come from the city centre to Prague 6, how do they get here? Oh, there is a very easy way, either walk or by tram or by underground. There are three ways how to, how to get to Prague 6. We've had a lot of fun walking around Prague with you and learning more about its Jewish history. If our listeners want to get in contact with you to organize a tour, how would they do that? They have to contact Prague City Tourism and they know me, I hope, well. Vlasta Edrova, thank you very much for looking after us. Yeah, it was a wonderful time with both of you and I appreciate Jewish humor, which is very close to Czech humor. Especially mine, not David's, oh. but less so with his. <laughs> I enjoy both of you. There are many things that make Mark and I happy. Our families. Sometimes. Our, yeah, mention our wives, I suppose. Food, travel, but probably the thing that makes both of us delighted into oblivion is alcohol. And we are surrounded by the most fantastic collection of booze 
that Prague has to offer, I imagine. And not just any old booze. No beer. No. And if I look up, it says kosher. Kosher? Kosher. Kosher booze that's good. I think we should try it before we come to that conclusion. (laughs) Well, we'll do tasting in a little bit. We have come to the Jelinek. Have I pronounced it right? Correct. Jelinek. Jelinek. The Jelinek Distillery. We can ask someone who can actually speak (laughs) the language later. It's a distillery and it's also a visitor centre with a museum and a restaurant. Right in front of us is Kosher Schlivovitz. And do you know how it's kosher? Not only because it says it's kosher, but because it comes with a Star of David around the bottle top. And even more importantly, a U with the letter O around it for Orthodox Union, if you prefer that. So let's do a very quick walk around the shop, which is just phenomenal. As our guide, who we will introduce you to a little bit later on, brings out for us plum lemonade. Of course, Slivovitz is plum-based, but that's not all that they have to offer on here. Should we do a run around this side? Because I think this was quite interesting. I'm not sure all of it is kosher. There is a kosher section, so you need to be careful. But, but, but... Remember that many, many non-grape-based alcohols are kosher, even though they don't have Correct. a Correct, and this is pretty much non-grape-based. So, there are lots and lots and lots of different types of Schlivovitzes with their ages on. Maybe we'll find out as we do the tasting afterwards what a good age Schlivovitz is like. But in addition, they have apricot Schlivovitz, they have gin, they have something called Gold Cock Whiskey. With oh, there's a whiskey as well? Yeah, turn right. Where, where, where? Gold Cock Whiskey. Oh, wow, as well as the Gold Cock Gin. But next to it, the same way that gin is made from juniper, but as we've already been told, gin is not just juniper, but other herbs as well. However, you can buy a drink here called Borovica, which is purely made from juniper. So that's going to be pretty sharp. You have a number of elixirs, which are based from herbs. I think one looks like it's based from rosehip. You've obviously got the plum. To the left, you've got Pear Williams, which is a brandy made from pear. With an entire pear, including the stalk and the skin, inside. You've got berries. You've got more apricots. There is a honey sliver of it. So what we're going to do now is head on a tour, and then we will report back with our fab guide and we'll actually do some tasting and an interview. After the tasting, you probably won't hear from us for another 24 hours. We'll be sleeping it off. Rudolf Jelinek has a rich history with the first kosher certified bottle of Slivovitz being exported to the USA in 1934, just after the end of the prohibition of the USA. Rudolf Jelinek also produces a higher standard of special kosher for Our guide, Annette Kratka, is absolutely killing herself laughing. Mark was just in hysterics, all because I said, I can smell it. And they just think it's very, very funny. No, I noticed you hadn't plugged in your microphone. Ah, okay. In front of us, we both have a beautiful cheese board and way of presenting Can we say smorgasbord? You could, a veritable smorgasbord. It's not really a Czech word. And we're just talking over each other, and we've not even drunk anything yet. We've just gone on a fabulous, fabulous tour. 
very often when you visit a distillery in Scotland or, or, or whatever it is, uh, uh, perhaps you've gone to... Um, a winery. A wi- thank you, I couldn't remember the word. A place where they make wine. <laughs> he's, I promise you, he hasn't started <laughs> drinking yet and he's gone. You will have a little bit of an explanation. Maybe they'll show you the barrels, but you don't get an experience. So here at... Now, you're going to pronounce it for me because I'm going to say it wrong each time. Anetta, how do you say the name of your company? Rudolf Jelinek. Okay, Rudolf Jelinek. At Jelinek's, it's both a store but also a visitor experience. There's how many dimensions, Mark? Because we talk about three-dimensional, four-dimensional. We went on a five-dimensional tour. We became plums. We actually did. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, I don't want to take my kids anywhere where there's alcohol... This really is the place that you should come, not so that your kids become alcoholics, but because there is a phenomenal tour here with with the goggles that you put on your head and you become a plum and you take the whole journey. But, But there's also the story of the development of this company that dates back hundreds of years and takes you all the way through to the present day, including those terrible times, both for the general Czech public, but also for the Jewish community here. It's worth coming just for that experience, even if you don't like booze at all. And if you do like booze and want to leave the kids, you've got the Plum 5D experience. Leave them strapped in. Come to the tasting room. Apparently, I'm not supposed to say that. That's not not the official tour. (laughs) I am now going to hand over my microphone to Aneta Kratka, who is the store and exposition manager, and she is going to take us through the sampling of the different drinks that we have in front of us and Mark will ask her questions whilst he gets drunk and you won't hear me slowly getting snozzled in a corner. We have three drinks in front of us, three separate glasses and some cheese and pickles to go with it. Tell us about the three glasses and what's in each of them. So you have three shots of our one of the best spirits we have. So the first one, we will start with Slivovitz, which is 50% strong, and it's the five years in the tank. Then the second one, you will have another Slivovitz, again, 50% strong, and it's the five years in the wood barrel. This is what you experience in the virtual reality. And the last one, it's our best pair, Kosher Williams, which has 42% strong. All of them are Kosher, so it means that during the process, it's our rabbi and checking all the quality. And I'm sure you will appreciate the quality as well. So please, take the first one. So we should start with the five-year-old... Slivovitz, exactly. Oh. So a sniff first. Just a little, oh. not all in once. That's how I remember Slivovitz. What does the aging do to the flavor? So it's definitely smoother. Even though it has 50%, you can feel that it's very smooth and nicely to drink. So it's definitely good to leave the slivets at least for a year, two, three, to stay in the barrel or tank and then drink it. In the movies, including in your own films here, again, which are wonderful, where if you, as you're going through the experience, you sit in a make-believe countryside area and, and really feel what it's like to produce this drink and to enjoy this drink. But even there... When we see the the sort of grandfather figure, he doesn't take a tiny sip. He throws the whole thing back in one go. So are we meant to sip? Are we meant to throw it back? And are we meant to smash our glasses into a fireplace? So I guess what we do in our region, which is on the other side of Czech Republic than Prague is, we do the third option. But personally, I sip it by small, but it's really up to you. But what we do, we just sip it straight away. 
I'm going to be indulgent because I'm the one holding the microphone and I'm going to have what's left in one go. But I'm already a little bit used to it. I've already lubricated the throat a bit with the first sips. Word of warning, we saw Grandpa by the time he had his third large (laughs) slug, he was dead. (laughs) That's so not fair because this amazing, amazing film that they must have spent millions in developing in this visitor centre shows the circle of life and how Schlivovica is a part of life for people in this country and unfortunately, happy and sad times. It was like when they shot Bambi. Well, he was ordering 150 after Slivovitz. <laughs> wow. Wow. Did you like it? I heard it was your first bottle of Slivovitz. When I was 18 years old to celebrate, instead of my parents taking me out to a pub, they bought me a bottle of your Slivovitz, kosher, which is the one that I just drank. I suspect my taste buds have matured somewhat or aged because it didn't have the same fiery impact on me that it did when I was 18 years old. The first Slivovitz I bought was from Hungary, and this... I don't want to upset anybody hungry. <laughs> this this tasted much smoother. You've still got the fire, but it's a much smoother drink. I'm going to have a glass of water before I get to... Well, we put bl- it inside there also. <laughs> so please, take the second glass. You have, again, five years old slivet, but this one get aged in oak barrel. So you will taste wooden taste. Maybe you might feel a little bit like cognac, but still, you can feel... Great plums I, it inside. It enhances the plums more, I think. I can smell more plum just from the aroma before I taste it. Yeah, you can also smell like a plum jam and wood, so it's even smoother. Is the colour change just because of the barrel? Yeah, that's true. If you leave it there only for five years, it has uh, light gold, but if you leave it for 20 years, it's really dark. That's that's nice. Now you sip it like our people. <laughs> we're sitting in this underground tasting room designed like a club we would be sitting upstairs but the museum is hosting a wedding today part of the circle of life and what an excellent place to come for a wedding party when we first met you it's probably very strange but within about a minute and a half we were already talking about your skin David no. was. I, I want to add David was. <laughs> no, I, I think it was Annette who brought it up first. But in terms of longevity, in terms of secrets of long life, come on, come on. You, you look like you're about 16, but... Well, you know, every evening I put slivets also on my skin, so <laughs> that's why in the reality I am almost uh, 15. <laughs> For photos of Annette, go to at Mark David Pot. <laughs> No, really, but sometimes we use it as a medication. When you feel sick, you get one shot that it might help you. That was my way how to be healthy. We said in a previous podcast, the the traditional Jewish food, people think of chicken soup, and chicken soup is sometimes thought of as a medicine. Mm -hmm. So here we have more alternative medicine. (laughs) And so you have the last one, which is the most delicious pear brandy we have. It's also from our own orchards with pears. So first smell it, it's a beautiful smell. We were saying earlier, I've just recovered from COVID. I thought my smell had not been affected. I actually can't smell something. And this is how we test it if we have a COVID. You know, we smell, if we smell it's good. When you drink it and feel it, it's also good. A red line has just appeared in your pear. (laughs) (laughs) Mark, how are you doing? I'm all right. (laughs) Actually, you're faking now, but you did just burp. I I did. Yeah, so it's getting to you. The test is standing up. 
The test is going up the spiral staircase that we came down. The whole place is absolutely superb. It really is beautiful. This is a brand new venture. The day they opened, COVID came. So everything here, because there have been so few visitors until now, everything here is spanking new. Everything is in mint condition. The staff are absolutely amazing. Not just Anetta, but we went into one of the bars. People were smiling, even though they're panicked getting the wedding ready. It's just a beautiful, beautiful venue and well worth coming as a visitor. Prague is such a beautiful city. So mm-hmm. many beautiful buildings and so much history. And, and when we travel, we like to break up the history and the architecture with experiences. This is a great experience when you come to Prague. And it is phenomenally... You can't get more central than this other than if somebody dunked you in the river. So this is your final opportunity to tell people where you are and how they can get hold of you. Yes, so we are, as you said, in a great location between Prague Castle and the Old Town. So you cannot miss us. Just a few steps from the Prague stairs. It's in the Prague 1, close to Malostranska. And you can reach us on our website. The name is slivetsmuseum.com. Very easy. The drink and the museum. My name is Aneta Kratka. And you can also find my contact on the website where you can also purchase the ticket or just stop by here and purchase the tickets with us or visit us just on the bar for the tasting and have a nice time here. Aneta is now going to take us to the shop where we're going to buy a lot of Slivovitz and take it home. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your visit. I had a lot of fun with you. Thank you. <laughs> so our journey through Jewish Prague is coming to an end. No! Yeah. We are in the final synagogue of the Jewish Museum of Prague tour, the Spanish synagogue. But it's not very Spanish. It is Spanish and it isn't, because in terms of architecture, look and feel, this is very much based on Spanish design. I think you said a little while ago when we were off mic that it it reminds you of almost the the Alhambra-esque type of architecture. The decoration, the, the, the style of the windows, and especially the dome, have that more temple like Spanish feel. However, when this was built in 1868 on the site of the Altshul, uh, the old synagogue, not to be confused with the Altneuschul, the old new synagogue, it was built for a reform, I suppose, European community. Ashkenazi. Ashkenazi. In community. fact, yesterday we were introduced to the man who is supposedly the only truly Sephardic Jew living in Prague today. And he's from Portugal. And came via Turkey. So it's a stunning building. Architecturally, it is well, well worth coming to look at. There's a stunning dome. We're sitting next to a very large organ. And talking of organs and music, there is one more final Jewish link to Prague that we would like to highlight. Jewish, Israeli, I'm sure many of you who listen to this podcast are familiar with the Israeli national anthem, Hatikva. Its melody is based on a work by the Czech composer, Bedrich Smetana. He wrote a series of six symphonic poems celebrating Bohemia, Mavlast, or Bohemia, my homeland. Highly appropriate given 
that it's about nationalism, that it was used as a national anthem. And also highly appropriate because Vlast or Vlasta is the name of one of the people that we'd like to say thank you to for this podcast. Absolutely, but she is just one of many, so go for it. I'd like to say a big thank you to Stefan, Ivo, Alan, Yatsira and Adnan at the Mozart Hotel in Prague. Vlaster, who we've just mentioned, our wonderful guide who took us around the Jewish part of Prague, not inside the Jewish Museum. Aneta and the team at Jelenik, who imbibed us with beautiful Slivovitz and Pear William. Zuzana and the team at the Jewish Museum Prague. For who imbibed us with tremendous education. And finally, Marek at Czech Tourism and Camilla at Prague City Tourism, who got us here and imbibed us with lovely hotel rooms. This is just one of, by now, about 40 podcasts that we've done. Have a listen to the other podcast that's out about Prague, looking more at the broader story of the town's development and also what it's like to live in Prague these days. We still have to give the quiz answer. Please do. The question was, in what city was the Maharal of Prague born? Rabbi Lowy, who we've mentioned, who is intrinsically linked with the story of the Golem of Prague and the Alt Neu Synagogue, where was he born? It's not that straightforward. However, that's one thing we've learned walking around Prague. Like one Jew, two opinions. There are at least two opinions as to where he was born. The main school of thought believes that he was born in Poznan in Poland. And there is a very large Golem of Prague statue, an impressive statue that we've seen there. And the other belief is that he possibly came from Václav or Breslav, as it was known in Poland. Or Rocklaw, as it's written in English. Rocklaw, as it's spelt, and how we normally pronounce it when we can't remember how it's done. So the answer to where he was born is Poland, probably Poznan. That's it for this edition of the podcast. We hope you've enjoyed our journey through Jewish Prague. Join us the next time as we travel around the world on the Jerusalem Post podcast travel edition. Ahoy. Goodbye from me too.